0: Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories from Australia and around the world. Produced at the studios of 3CR on Wurundjeri Country in Fitzroy, Victoria, and broadcast to stolen lands right across this continent via the Community Radio Network. I'm Tisha Na'Hearn.
1: And I'm Alex Kakafekas. We often think of environmental politics as inherently progressive, but, from the mainstream to the margins, ecological questions are increasingly important to the far-right and fascist movements. The wider environmental movement needs to be vigilant against the increased use of ecological concerns by right-wing governments and fascist groups alike. On this week's show, we speak to Nick Barrow, an academic and activist who has written on the issue of the far-right and ecological politics in the era of climate change.
0: Nick characterises eco-fascist thought as ranging from climate denialism to a particularly racialised focus on population. Also, fascist thought sees the nation and the environment in the same way, as fixed and enclosed entities. This is an idea that it shares with much of Western environmental thought. We start our discussion on this common heritage. Nick opens by discussing the shared influence of English economist Thomas Malthus.
2: And I think like, it's worth noting that lots of the early environment movement, um, not just sort of the you know, pre, sort of like, I guess the new movements in the 60s and 70s, but including them, was actually fascistic. Again, I don't think we need to be shy about naming it as such. Malthus is really interesting, and I think that's a really it's a really good good place to start, and that Malthus's work is often ignored and sort of the subtlety of it. He was really concerned with not just, you know, ecological scarcity, but in a sense, an excess of human desire. An ex- like this, He sort of, he made a distinction between civilized and savage life. And the distinction was that civilized life was uh, a sort of a life that could restrain itself. So, you know, it could, it could recognize that as a, as a species, humanity could consume everything. It could destroy the natural world, but because it was civilised, it could see the damage it could do and it would restrain its desires, just, you know, restrain its consumption, whereas savage life needed to be governed, it needed to be controlled, or needed to be let die, needed to be abandoned to its fate when it consumed too much. And, you know, I think that's an interesting element of modern environmental thought in many ways. I mean, I think an interesting example would be, say, George Monbiot on the UK. I'm not sure if he's he's um he's well known in Australia, but he's a very prominent environmental journalist and, a, and environmental writer in the UK. And he's written on more than one occasion that the main problem with you know, say, climate change or you know, environmental overshoot in general is that people refuse to restrain themselves, and that if only people would restrain themselves, then the political will would exist in order to tackle climate change, deforestation you know, the sixth mass extinction, the rest of it. But he identifies quite clearly that people and people's desire to consume is the core of the problem. And what's lacking is, I guess, in, Mal- in a Malthusian sense, civilized life. Within sort of eco-fascist law, you can see how that's sort of taken all the way out. Like, actually, there's, there isn't enough to go around. There really, life itself does tend towards savageness. And the best hope for maintaining sort of existing qualities of life is really to ensure that anyone outside of the the nation is left to die. It is a, you know, quite a, it's a a, a politics of abandonment in some ways or, you know, through sort of military excursions, a, a politics of punishment in some ways for daring to be alive, excessive, too much, that sort of stuff. How that intersects with carrying capacity is interesting in that it's a, I remember back in sort of the early 2000s, there was like a lot of talk of carrying capacity as a, an environmental concern that was used to justify lots of Australia's border regime at that point. That Australia's a fragile economy, it can't support that many people, that actually we needed to restrict migration because there's only so many people the environment could you know, sustain. Now, in some ways, that's a, it's just a, a classic reiteration of the sort of Malthusian distinction. I mean, it's also factually wrong. There is there's nowhere in the world that sustains itself. There's no purely self-contained, self-sufficient national territory. Even the notion of a national territory is kind of a, a bit odd. There is nowhere that doesn't. There's no place on Earth that's not the site of multiple, uh, you know, more than human migrations of you know, weather systems and uh, nutrient like corridors and patterns that crisscross national borders so there's no such thing as a self-contained territory but the idea that australia could only contain or only hold so many people at that time started to give green legitimacy to the border regime and you can sort of see how that then would um could be, could be accelerated through the sort of malthusian lens of civilized and savage the idea that in australia you know people will buy only ethical meat and have their, you know, hybrid cars and put their solar panels on and they'll do all the right things. But you know, these migrants who come here, they they want the good life. They want to have all the you know the latest this and the latest that. And they'll buy too many things and they'll eat meat for every meal and you know, all the rest of it. And that if they did that it would be too much. And you know, we can't trust that they'd restrain themselves like us because they they're from a different culture. They're a different people. And so I think carrying capacity is an interesting one that it's a kind of a, to begin with, it's a bit of a myth. It doesn't really, it's not really a a very ecologically valid concept, but it really does give legitimacy or some sort of pseudoscientific legitimacy to the notion that a place has to be maintained or managed through some sort of civilized practice of self, self self-restraint in order for it not to be denuded. And then that then further underpins, you know, some of the, I guess what you'd call the, the core state practice to be eco which is a militarized border regime.
1: It goes to the sort of heart of how they how eco fascists see the environment as well. They're not seeing it as you described as sort of a complicated interplay of different things, they just see it as a sort of primordial purity over there, and that any interference is a you know, is, is a, um, anything that isn't pure preservation with no kind of human element is contamination.
2: Completely, it's a it's a in some ways ecofascism is an environmentalism without nature. You know, it's a it's a environmentalism of conservation of bird watching and you know sports shooting and sport fishing. It, it it doesn't have an actual relationship with the rest of the world. It it doesn't at all. What it wants to use it very much as a, that backdrop to. Um, and, this, and this is very, it's interesting. You, know, you can it's often the extreme expressions of it, It's a backdrop to a really masculine potent sort of powerful mastery of a, a national space but it, it not necessarily you know, i think there's it's just as possible to have um, you know, let's homo nationalist versions of eco-fascism possibly feminist like though i i doubt it'd actually be a fully fledged feminist eco-fascism given like you know the the historical role of feminism in terms of Confronting and interrogating, you know, the, this notion that nature is a backdrop to human activity. I think here I'm thinking specifically of our Plumwood, whose work in Australia in particular on this sort of stuff is, is you know, really lays bare the sort of the fallacy of that nature is a backdrop for our activity. That's just there to be used and to really provide some sort of theater for human achievement or male achievement more to the point.
0: I do want to just jump back in our discussion a bit though, Nick. Really, really liked what you said about um, the border. And I'm wondering if we can um, firstly just sort of name that, name what the the big looming um, environmental, um, you know, catastrophe is. And then uh, if you'd like to comment on how climate change and borders are being brought into an eco-fascist thought in the parliamentary realm. So I'm thinking, say, in France with Marie Le Pen and the right uh, engaging in in parliamentary politics and drawing together uh, eco-fascist thought, how, how that's been articulated.
2: In terms of sort of naming the um, the climate catastrophe at the moment, I think we should start by naming it as a political situation rather than an environmental one. Like, you know, it's it's easy to get caught up in the, the, the figures and the, the descriptions of these sort of huge, beyond imaginable processes. But I think what we're witnessing and fits and starts as a political reaction is really that politics of the armed lifeboat, the most extreme version of which is a sort of a fully eco-fascist sort of state. By that, I mean what we're seeing is the articulation and development of a series of national... And international policies and practices that seek to militarily protect the the wealth of the global north, the resources of the global north, often you know articulated, developed through centuries of colonialism, imperialism, and now neo colonialism protect it from the rest of the world. And the rest of the world will be left and is being left to bear the consequences of. Um, lower crop yields, more frequent storms, rising sea levels, the, the devastation left behind by proxy wars, uh, resource imperialism, and just being, you know, articulated as a an extractive or, you know waste like or, you know, waste development zone for the global north. Like it's a real articulation of a, an armed and fortified climate apartheid. And then, I don't think that's a a hyperbole. I think we can really see that being articulated right now. In the global north, that's being replicated. It's like a fractal sort of problem where you start seeing policies and processes bit by bit, you know, being fought over about who will have to pay for any sort of transition. And transition in two senses, transition to a less carbon intensive economy, which will happen even in the most, you know, climate denialist of states but also a transition to a kind of climate-securitized state where, well, you know, you have an increasing intensification of policing, of internal segregations in sort of private military and private security forces. So I think the political situation that we're dealing with is the articulation of an armed and fortified climate apartheid at a global scale. In terms of how that intersects with climate migration and the rise of the far right in Europe in particular, it's a, I think there's a clear connection between the two, particularly as what sort of gave a sort of a renewed emphasis, at least in Europe, to fascism, eco-fascism, was the um, Syrian crisis, the ongoing Syrian civil war. Now, prior to that, there'd been a consistent rise in um, xenophobia and racism, and in particular Islamophobia across Europe. In part, this was um, the result of you know, demographic changes and economic changes, but overwhelmingly it's been a state-led project. You know, Islamophobia, at least in Europe, is a state-led project. as a state ideology. After about you know, 1995, when you had like a, um, some uh, bombings in France, um, you know, part of the undealt-with legacy of you know, their you know, colonial era, in particular around Algeria, yeah, this increasing um, demarcation of migration from sub- sub-Saharan Africa, in particular, or and like North Africa, especially, um, all migrants were starting to be characterised not as criminals necessarily, which is how it was often dealt with you know, in the eighties, but as terrorists, as potential terrorists. And a lot of the Mediterranean states, and I'm thinking in particular Italy, you have had you've seen a massive surge in Islamophobia coupled with a rise in racism, but often you know, often the two are put together. So the migrant has long been seen as like a terroristic sort of figure, one who's arriving not just to, in a criminal activity or to steal jobs, but actually to physically do harm to people inside of Europe. With the um, Syrian crisis um, kicking off, you know, it sort of peaked in 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 terms of numbers, 2014, 2016, but, you know, the the Syrian civil war, in many ways, was sparked, or you know, at least there was a contribution um, by drought, sort of quite an extended drought period from two thousand seven to two thousand eleven. Now, it's you know, you can't say one thing or another is due to climate change, but it was made you know, events like that were made far more likely by climate change. So, in part, it was described, at least you know, at the time, as one of the first climate change wars. Now, it led to a massive surge in migration out of Syria, overwhelmingly to neighbouring countries, as is always the case. Um, when people are forced to move, when they're displaced, generally they're displaced internally. Almost all the rest of the time, they're displaced to a neighbouring country. Some people tried to migrate to Europe. You know, we're not talking the majority at all in this instance. The numbers were large for Europe. You know, in context, they weren't large at all compared to, say, the, the numbers in, say, Jordan or Turkey or um, Iran or any of the other neighboring countries. But it caused a massive panic, and coupled with sort of, you know, the ongoing recession here, and increasing fears of loss of control, loss of like you know, loss of economic control, loss of political control across Europe, which have long fed the right. You know, the rise of the EU fed the right. Um, as some sort of national resistance to sort of the very neoliberal policies of Europe, it led to a surge in support for the far right across Europe. Even saying that feels a bit wrong. It didn't lead to a surge. The right capitalised on it in a way that spoke to people's fears, spoke to their um, experiences. It didn't lead to the current border policies of Europe, though, and so in some ways they're kind of they're slightly disconnected. The state. Had long been pursuing a murderous policy of border defence through the Mediterranean. It just so happened that was given further popular legitimacy through the surge in the far right, who wanted to then further double down on border controls. And so you, you know, you'd see the the active pushback of migrants around in Hungary and like other Eastern European countries. You'd see the shift in uh, um, Italian politics, in particular, where they actively refuse humanitarian landings. There have been a number of reports of French and Italian military ships actively sabotaging or sinking boats as well. Then there was the ongoing program of working with um, Libyan uh, warlords, for lack of a better word, to actively sabotage, undermine, and contain and push people back. I think in some ways that was very much modelled on Australia's approach or historical approach to migration. Going back, uh, I guess going back all the way to Keating now that we're talking about it, um, but obviously intensified under Howard and unfortunately ever since. People, at least in Europe, it was the Australian model was actively talked about as the way forward, the way that the Mediterranean should be policed. You know, the, the Australian model was something to be adopted, to be you know, everything from offshore detention centres to active pushback programs to covert operations in departure countries. Unfortunately, in some ways, I think Australia prefigured some of the key elements of the fusion of a uh, sort of a right-wing popularism with a state-led program of pushback and border defence. You know, it's a, it was a laboratory for the fusing of the two. You know? I, I don't know. I wouldn't know. I don't know if, if we'd say that Australia has an active fascist movement of any sort of you know, size or currency, but it, it does have quite a large. Um, Right wing and far right wing uh, social current. I think the Cronella riots are a really clear example of sort of, you know, a, sort of a popular explosion around this sort of sentiment. And I think that fusion of a, of a, of a everyday far right attitude with the state defense of a militarized border is an unfortunate convergence that really does need to be the, like the, the centre or the, the foci of our political activism, at least for the next five to ten years.
0: You're listening to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories on the Community Radio Network.
1: On today's show, we are talking with Nick Burrow about the issue of the far right and ecological politics in the era of climate change. What does a environmentalism with a sort of liberatory outlook Need to do to confront this.
2: I think there's a, there's a number of things to work on, but I think that sort of the the first is really to like any sort of confrontation with the border regime, sort of a militarized border regime. In some like deep sense, is an, an an environmental anti-fascism. There is no environmental anti-fascism that does not start with and centre on the demilitarization, the desecuritization of the border and the national space that has to be sort of the, at least in the, the next 10 to 20 years, like that is going to be the front line around not just, you know, where ecofascism develops, but more generally around even um, where national policies that aren't eco-fascist will sort of falter as progressive agendas. Like the border really will be the front line for any sort of progressive environmental politics. I think in terms of the actual broader currents of eco-fascism, there is I suppose it, it this sounds quite vague perhaps, but it can be realized in quite specific ways. There needs to be a real confrontation where that sense of mastery over nature, that you know, that sort of hunting, fishing, shooting You know, bird watching. I don't mean to put bird watching there. Watching birds is great, but like you know, you you know what I mean. That sort of environmentalism, that sort of uses nature as the backdrop, and there has to be some engagement or development or articulation of of an environmental politics that tries to bring the rest of the world into our lives. That doesn't try to maintain a hard and fast division between us and everything else. I think that's important because going back to some of the stuff we were saying before. One of the two foundations for eco-fascism is this notion of scarcity. And I think we need to interrogate what that scarcity means and what is scarce and what does it mean to work with what we have in a way that produces at least a sense or a politics of abundance. And I understand that sounds paradoxical. The Amazon's burning, sea ice is retreating, deserts are spreading, it doesn't really seem to be a moment or a world of abundance. But if we are to actually confront sort of that, that paranoid nationalism, just, you know, to, to reference Ghassan Hajj's work on it, that paranoid nationalism of an eco-fascist agenda, we need to find ways of engaging with the current state of ecological crisis in ways that produces novel senses of abundance or at least enables us to produce Relationships with the rest of the world that don't seem to be underpinned by what we don't have, or that there's not enough for everyone to have.
1: Are there lessons from, I guess, like the history of anti-fascism, both inside and outside the environmental movement?
2: What does that
1: does that have any lessons for us today?
2: I think there's two good reference points or sort of good examples of where left the left and the other progressive like. Forces. And I'm, I'm including the environmental movement and the left at this point. I'm, I know there's a right-wing environmental movement, but I'm just going you know, to pretend they don't exist. <laughs> they're not, at least not, they're not the people that we're talking to. I think there's, there's two good reference points for us. The first, and this is it's a this is one of the you know one of those moments in Australian history we can be really quite proud of. Is the Green Band. There's a, a you know the history of the Green Band isn't one of just sort of conservation, but of you know anti-homophobia, anti-like racism of feminist politics, there's actually uh, there's a, there's a lesson to be learned in terms of the application of industrial force and militancy to social problems. And I think there's a, there's a, a much needed return to political unionism that would underpin a sort of a, a very progressive or radical or left-wing environmental politics. Now, of course, this is, you know, we've, we've talked about this before, we've tried in fits and starts, but political unionism, much beyond just trade unionism, is one of the, the main places that we can make a real difference. I mean, you can see how it would work, say, at the moment in terms of um, defending uh, the Indigenous peoples and the you know, people more generally around the Amazon. You know, if you had it, in terms of dock workers, in terms of logistics workers, refusing to unload sort of Brazilian ships for instance, you can see how that could, you know, that's a real application of militancy for social and environmental goals. And I think a political unionism, we're working on the the incorporation of environmental sensibility and environmental politics politically through unions, but then, you know, let's think about more broadly, through our community organisations, through our community institutions, could actually be a real foci or a real real space with which we can articulate a, a, a sense of power Around and over eco-fascist currents. I think the second one, and this is a lesson, you know, from a very recent one in the UK, is that there was a real return to street-based fascism in the UK. Well, it still is; it's still ongoing. You know, at one point there were demonstrations of 30,000 people on the streets in the UK. Far-right demonstrations. There's now at a point where they will put maybe five hundred people in the streets, six hundred people in the streets, and one of the main reasons is that they were relentlessly confronted on the streets by an anti, like an active anti-fascist movement. They were relentlessly confronted in communities. They were like all their claims would, you know, they they often were, were claiming to defend women, you know, from sexual violence by Brown men. There was an active, there is an active feminist movement confronting them relentlessly on this question. So I think, other than sort of a, a very political unionism, I think an active and ongoing confrontation to not be scared to meet them in the streets, to to picket their meetings, to prove them wrong in every possible opportunity and to stop them taking up the space that they take up is also an, an, another necessary component. And I think political unionism seems in some ways very attractive to environmentalists. It makes sense. You can go to meetings, you go to protests, you can join picket lines. It's It's actually not that different to what, most environmentalists do on a day-to-day level. The idea of going out and confronting fascists on the streets is somewhat alien to most environmentalists, I'm sure, but it can't be neglected in the sense that fascism in all its variants is a violent ideology. There isn't any way to confront it without being prepared to stand up to that violence, without being prepared to confront it. It doesn't mean, you know, getting tooled up and going out and beating up people. It does mean being prepared to put yourself out there. I think we need those two elements, uh, an active and ongoing confrontation that refuses to cede public space to them and organising efforts in order to politicise those vehicles, those organisational vehicles that we still have, be they unions, uh, be they community groups, be they activist organisations, NGOs, we need to like, have a, a real focus of politicising them to use them as means by which to exert leverage. I think between those two, we could roll back eco-fascism as a tendency and as a specific expression.
0: Nick Burrow, academic and activist working in the UK. You've been listening to Earth Matters, Community Radio's National Environmental Justice Program. I'm Tisha Nahern.
1: And I'm Alex Kakafekas. If you missed any of today's show, you can find our podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. Or if you're listening via iTunes or any other podcasting service, why not rate us and leave a review? It helps us spread the word. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program to you. Earth Matters is produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on Wurundjeri Country. If you'd like to get in contact, you can send us an email at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or send us a letter, care of 3 cr Don't forget to check out our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. I hope you can tune in next time for more Earth Matters.